You know, as I hear that, Paul David Tripp is an, an author I love. He took his son to one of the great museums in Washington, D.C., one of our national galleries. He was so excited. It was his youngest son. And he thought, oh, this is going to be great. And it was a not so great because his son was not engaged, and it, he learned a lot from it and how to, to, to nurture his son along that path of recognizing beauty. It's something that uh, I had to do. I awakened, I was a late bloomer from that standpoint of awakening to uh, transcendent beauty and starting learning to pay attention to it and nurturing my sons along those lines. Same thing happened, but with, with Paul, he said, I watched my son, and here I was just mesmerized, and here my son was surrounded by, by glory, and he didn't see it. He said his eyes were working, but his heart was stone blind, and as a result, he saw everything, but he saw nothing. Some of you heard that. And some of you heard it. And it has nothing to do with training or, or our, our orientation musically. It has to do with decisions we make as a human being to pay attention. Uh, Mike Iaconelli, a couple of years before he died, wrote, the greatest enemy of Christianity may be people who say they believe in Jesus, but who are no longer astonished and amazed. Our, our culture is awash in immorality and drowning and dullness. We've forgotten how to dance. We've forgotten how to sing. We've forgotten how to laugh. We've allowed technology to beat our imaginations into submission and have become tourists rather than travelers. I don't know that that's ever more true than at Christmas time. We get our to-do lists going and moving along and we, we tend to, to move into, uh, we, we hit the repeat button just from last year. Great stuff. What's Christmas? It's shopping. It's eating. It's going to parties. It's getting gifts. It's Christmas carols. It's nostalgia. All that's fine, but what if? That's what we're calling this series, Rediscovering All. What if this Christmas, in addition to all of that, we were to peel back some of the layers of cliches, of traditions, and peel it back and look at the origin, the depth, the beauty. And instead of seeing a little baby in a manger that's a mascot of a season in nice little starched white uh, environments and these nice little very clean swaddling clothes, instead realize the juxtaposition of the king of all creation occupying a, a shepherd's cave that was carpeted with centuries of manure accumulated. That's where they kept sheep, wallpapered by the soot of Bedouin fires for centuries. And no one's paying attention. And see, the juxtaposition of, of that 
tranquility, even though it was not the kind of tranquility of, with spice and nutmeg that we have now, but there's a tranquility about that. And it, 33 years later, the horror of the crucifixion, and start paying attention to the so what. So that's what we're going to be doing during Advent this year. As you already know from Nathan last week, we're going to let the passage guide us, be, be a passage that's way too familiar to a lot of us. But we're going to go through it, and the Holy Spirit's going to pop and uh, pop some things into our head and awaken us. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. If you don't own a Bible, you can look at the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you can look at the screens. If you don't own a Bible, go back to the welcome desk afterwards. So when you go say hi to Norm and Sula afterwards, just grab a Bible as our gift. Luke chapter 2. Remember this setting, Joseph and Mary have left the Galilee, they've come down to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph's family is from because there was a census being taken. And these two are probably very alone. They, it's, there were other family members of Joseph's that were there for sure, but they had no place to stay because this couple was dealing with a pregnancy that was un, unwanted, unexplained. And this little baby's being born. Meanwhile, some shepherds, kind of the lowest rung on the vocational ladder, if you will. These shepherds are living out in the field. It's a normal night, they think. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, now verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news, evangelion. I bring you great news. I bring you gospel. And it's a gospel that's going to cause great joy for all the people who pay attention to it. People who engage with you know, the Elizabeth Barrett Browning quote that you've heard me say before that I love, every bush, common bush is aflame with, with the glory of God, but only he or she who sees takes off their shoes. The rest of us sit around pluck blackberries. The rest of us kind of give a nod to a little manger scene. We walk by it, but there was something far more going on. And this angel continued it, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, want you look at that hymn. These are not angels. This is, wasn't a dozen or so guys in bathrobes coming and holding some little harp and with some wired-on wings. This is the heavenly host that at one at the same moment of terrifying was also liberating, drawing something out of them. Maybe a little reverberations that you just experienced, that I did. And look at what they're singing. Glory to God in the highest heaven. So that's the first phrase. Look at them phrase by phrase. 
and on earth peace. Usually Christmas cards stop there, by the way. But that last qualifier to those on whom his favor rests, those are the people that experience the peace and participate in the glory. So what we're going to do during this series is unpack that hymn. Now, we started last week with what the angels said about this going to bring great joy. So last week we looked at joy and this rediscovering awe. What's involved is just encountering unexpected joy, but also unexpected glory, unexpected peace, and unexpected favor. Today, let's look at glory. It's a word that we take for granted. We don't think about. We might use it in church circles, but it's a cliche, glory to God. Oh boy, that was glorious. But what does it mean? What's the significance of it? So let me remind you of this. That hymn, the angels didn't just come down and say, hey, what's a catchy tune? Anybody got something? I mean, this is his birthday, Jesus' birthday. No, no, no. There was intentionality into what these angels were singing. And the first word out of this angelic chorus that filled the sky was glory. What's that got to do with my Mondays? Well, the word glory is a word that appears almost, about two, almost 300 times in English, 296, that was my last count. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the Old Testament, the, the, the Hebrew word is kabod. In the New Testament, the word is, the Greek word is doxa. And there's no one English word that easily translates. It, it means that there's a fullness, there's a nuance, there's a breadth, there's, there's, a, there, there's a depth, there's a height. It means beauty and splendor and worth and wealth and excellence and grandeur and weight. The word kabod means heaviness, sufficiency, a word we've coined here, enoughness. The glory of God is His wealth and His splendor and His worth and His wealth and His weight and His excellence and His grandeur and His sufficiency and His enoughness, His self-existence. It is the essence of who He is. It's why He created this planet and in the fall, in creation, His glory was perfect. It was there. The rebellion happened. Human beings doing what you and I still know well how to do, saying, God, we don't need you to be normal human beings. Sin entered the picture. And so the glory of God is now marred. And you see it every morning on newscasts and social media posts about there's not it. Everything's not glorifying him these days. And what these angels are doing is proclaiming The significance of what's happening here is not the inauguration of a holiday. It's that the fullness of God's glory is once again visiting His his creation. So to unpack what glory does for me on a daily basis and for you and how we we can participate in it, I'm going to ask Gabe, my buddy Gabe, to bring a, a small little prop out. 
It was uh, something that he's been holding in his pocket a little bit, but he's going to bring it out. Some of you remember a story I, I told a while back about going hiking. I was, I was speaking to some pastors down in Peru and, at a pastor's conference, and I had another pastor with me. They gave us the afternoon off. They hired a guide for us, taking us for a hike in the jungle. And uh, we got lost. The guide got lost. Guide, the guide got lost. And it was getting dark, so it was a three-hour hike. Sounds like Gilligan's Island a little bit. And it was getting dark, and I'm thinking, I do not want to spend the night in the jungle. And so I found a tree that I, as best as I could estimate, in the thickness of the jungle, a tree that was above the rest of the canopy of the jungle, went up there, finally got my bearings. We came down and got back. That's what glory me grappling with the glory of God can do in my vocation, in my relationships, doctor's appointments, client meetings, final exams, date nights, court hearings. What those angels were proclaiming is a transcendent perspective that you and I can have in this process of Him redeeming and restoring the cosmos. But how do I get up here? How do you get up here? It's a climb. Let me give you four progressions. But these four progressions are countering something that's at the essence of the brokenness of sin. You guys know the verse, Romans 3.23? Might not know the reference, but you've heard it before. For all have sinned, and what? Fall short of the glory of God. If you've been in the church for a while or walking with Jesus for a while, you know that verse well. It, it has almost become something we're too familiar. I want you to grapple with it for a minute. Do you know what this verse is saying? A lot of people say, yeah, it says that the glory of God's a standard. We miss it, and therefore it's sin. Okay. But that's not the ultimate meaning of this verse. The Greek word there for falling short means lacking. The tragedy of our rebelliousness, us saying, God, we can be normal human beings without you, is that as a result of our rebellion, we are opting for something less than the glory of God. We are opting for something trivial. We're becoming way too easily pleased, filling ourselves with junk food instead of feasting on the wealth and the splendor and the enoughness and the sufficiency of God on a daily basis. And so the beauty of the gospel, what these angels were proclaiming is glory to God. You need not be short, be lacking of the glory of God any longer because a payment, a redemption of your sin has come. And it can be a part of your daily existence. So what's it look like? Well, the very first time I start encountering the glory of God is what I do on a daily basis. I've got to acknowledge the ache. You know the ache. Some of it was evoked when you were listening to something as beautiful as that song, or it might happen at a sunset, or the cackle of a child, or in those haunting moments when you're saying, I just am thirsty. I've got an ache for significance, for, for security, for meaning for beauty, truth, goodness. I mean, it's rare because we typically keeping ourselves so busy, so uh, 
we're not bothered by the echo of the ache, but it's there. So acknowledging the ache to begin this progression towards this perspective and of living my life, a very normal but fulfilled human life within the realm of, of, of consciously engaging with God's glory begins with acknowledging my ache. But it's not just acknowledging the have the ache, it's acknowledging the bankruptcy of all the things I do to try to address the ache. Read of, of a guy named Patrick Lawyer, construction worker, several years ago in Denver. And it, it, he had a toothache, and it was bothering him almost a week. I mean, it was bad. He was doing ice cream to, to deaden the pain and taking aspirin. Nothing was working. His wife worked at a dentist office, and she said, you, just come in. Let him take a look. So he comes in and shares the symptoms. They take a look inside, and they said, well, let's do an x-ray. They did an x-ray. He had a four-inch nail embedded in his skull. It was from a, a nail gun that had gone just this freak accident almost a week before, and it had ricocheted up, just missed it, went in through his open mouth and just missed his eye, and in the midst of all the other stuff, he hadn't realized it. Here he's taking aspirin for a nail that's embedded in his skull. And I have this yearning for significance, and I think, you know, what's going to help with that is popularity. What's going to help with that is a few more bucks in my bank account. What's going to help with that? Fill in the blank. In fact, try to fill in the blank right now. My soul thirsts for… What is it that you're thirsty for right now? What is it that you're aching for? What is it that you, we think that will solve and address the ache? Is it control? Is it money? Is it a particular relationship? Is it… A, a doctor's report. Well, the psalmist says, if you want to begin this progression, acknowledge the ache in the context of truth. The psalmist says, my soul thirsts for God. Go to that next slide. My soul thirsts for God. When I come to that realization that what I'm thirsty for is for the living God, when can I go and meet with him? That's when things start happening. When he says, I want to meet with the living God. Frederick Beekner says, the danger is that you will not listen to the voice that speaks to you, but that instead you listen to the great blaring, boring, banal voice of our mass culture, which threatens to deafen us all by blasting forth that the only thing that really matters about your work is how much it will get you in the way of salary and status, and that if it is gladness you're after, you can save that for the weekends. As C.S. Lewis says, we're far too easily pleased. And for me to begin to participate in the glory of God is acknowledging my ache, acknowledging what will address it. And then that next step of progression is concentrating on Christ. Saying, okay, I'm going to engage with the Jesus, not the Jesus that I want, but the Jesus who is. And we tend to go by at Christmas time, this little mascot of a holiday, sitting in a, a little manger scene and not paying attention to who he really is. A lot of you know uh, I'm a big Denver Broncos fan, and uh, John Elway is the icon of the Broncos, the quarterback, three Super Bowls, now the general manager, the guy who runs the show there. He was being interviewed a couple of years ago by uh, uh, Dan Patrick of Sports Illustrated and ESPN fame. And Dan was talking to him about his daily life and how popular he was, because he has car dealerships and restaurants and, 
And he said, how do you even get, do you ever go out in public? He said, oh yeah. I mean, he says, yeah, but you, do you have to have people? He said, no, sometimes I just go out alone. He said, you can't, you're kidding me, right? You, you don't go out to shop or like to the mall. You can't do that. So what do you do? He says, oh no, I go to the mall. Dan Patrick said, you go to the mall and people don't just mob you? He says, no. He says, how's that work? He says, well, I, I wear a jersey of mine. He said, what do you mean a jersey of mine? He says, you know, the jersey all fans wear. It binds my orange Denver Broncos jersey. It has Elway on the back and a number seven. He says, yeah. He says, yeah, I wear that. He says, and people see me, and I can tell they, they think I'm Luke Klein, but then they think there's no way that John Elway would be wearing his own jersey at the mall, and so they just leave me alone. Why don't you stop a while at the manger and say, is it really him? Not the mascot of a holiday, but the fulfillment of the prophecies for the restoration of God's glory in his creation. Isaiah 40, a messianic prophecy, this is how it describes the coming of Jesus. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Isaiah 60, a few chapters later, verse 1, again, another prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Do you want to know the significance of that baby in the manger? A baby who grew up, died on a cross, three days later was risen again and ascended to the Father. Arise, shine, for your light has come because the glory of the Lord rises upon you. The significance of that baby's arrival is the restoration of the glory of God in its fullness to his creation. And he says, see, see, darkness covers the earth, thick darkness over all the peoples. I know what that's like. You? I think you do. We're navigating through darkness all the time. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. And again, this is referring to the Messiah. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn, which is why John in John 1, 14 describes him in the Logos. The Word became flesh, describing Jesus. He says, he made his dwelling among us. And we, what was most significant about Jesus? He's some religious guru. He's some religious guru that says, hey, if you just kind of adopt my little program, you can be religious. If you are not a follower of Christ, somebody's invited you here and you're just kind of checking it out, please hear this. All those things that have concerned you in the past, that boy just doesn't seem real. When Norman's talking about honesty and, and beauty, you thought, I don't know there's anything honest or beautiful about institutional religion. And I think the, the, just wondering about Jesus, did he just come to found a holiday? That is a Jesus people have put over there. The Jesus that was in that manger is the Jesus who was the embodiment of the glory of God. Fully, for the first time in all creation, we've talked about since Adam and Eve, there had been nobody else more fully alive than Jesus. Jesus was the first fully alive human, truly alive, not just heart beating, lung breathing, but fully alive since Adam and Eve before the fall. But even with Adam and Eve, they did not embody the glory of God like Jesus did. Get to know Him. He came from the Father and He's full of grace. He's full of truth. He's not some mascot of a holiday. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. <laughs> and the exact representation of his being. 
So on a daily basis, for me to make this progression, the glory of God, it's acknowledging my awe, but it's also concentrating on Christ, getting to know Jesus during this season. But then there's grasping His glory that comes into play, realizing why He came. He didn't come to start a holiday. He came to restore you and me to something, and He came to restore something to all of creation. A lot of you know one of my favorite verses. It's an overarching theme in Scripture, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled, and this is, remember what I said earlier, the glory of the Lord was perfect in creation, perfectly overlapping with everything he is. The rebellion happened. There were plenty of things, you see it every day, that don't glorify him. But where are we headed in this progression of God's not only redemption, but restoration of all things? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it's gradual, little by little, I start grasping, part of my purpose is actually to get that, to see that, to notice that, to see the events, but see the meaning behind the events. And it's realizing there's a progression daily, and it's incremental. It's going into his timetable. You guys remember me telling you about last spring, I took a splurge trip, used miles. But to be with my son down in Patagonia to climb, he had, was finishing a year of, of serving in an orphanage in Bolivia, and so we climbed down in Patagonia. And one morning early, we got up in the, in the middle of the night, actually, to get to a vantage point to see Mount Fitzroy, that's actually the mountain peak on Patagonia logos, the clothing logo. And he did a time-lapse photo, uh, photo with his, just with his iPhone propped up. And here's a part of it. But the reason I'm showing this to you, it, it, it's fast, it's in fast time. It's just little by little. But if you could hit fast forward in creation, we would see the same thing happening little by little, the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea, which is one thing I prayed about, thought about, we talked about as we were freezing to death there on the mountainside. It's just 17 seconds. Take a look. That happened yesterday. You're saying, what, a sunrise? Yes, a sunrise. But you know what else happened yesterday? And it'll happen today. Is the glory of the Lord will advance a little bit more in covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are part of that agenda. You talk about significance. You know what our calling is, Isaiah? 43.6, God says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. And if you're not a follower of Christ, this applies to you. It's a summons. If you already have come to Christ, this happened. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, you as a human being, and that applies to every human being, has been created to demonstrate, to embody, to enjoy, to experience the wealth, the weight, the splendor, the sufficiency, the enoughness of God. 
The tragedy of not being a follower of Jesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. We don't have that perspective. We don't understand. We just see the stuff that's going on right in front of us, and you know, the jungle leaves hitting us in the face, but we, and, and we deal with it by taking our, our anesthetics and our painkillers and our distractions and pursuing our idols because we can't rise above it. But when I come to to Christ. Two verses later, verse 6, 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's why the angel said, I bring you evangelion. Good news, not nice news, not religiously appropriate news. I bring you the best news that you could ever have as a human being, that you can be restored to what you're wired to do. And you, you, we just need to acknowledge the ache, take the ache to Him, concentrate on Jesus, not a mascot of a holiday, but the Lord and Savior of all creation begin to grasp His glorious purposes, and then fourthly participate in the plot. Guys, Christianity is not just a set of propositions. It's a plot. The thing I'm excited about for us at Northland is we are realizing, and have for years, we're part of a great plot of the glory of the Lord covering this earth as the waters cover the sea. And it's the agenda, Psalm 72. Let's take a look at it. Psalm 72, let's bring that text up. Praise be to His glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with His glory. That's not a little religious nicety. That's the agenda. That is the plot. And so you and I, actually this is, we, we, we really to participate in the plot, we need to come down here. So that's why this is not that good of a prop. Probably the best prop would have been stilts, but I wasn't going there. Because stilts, you just are up above and you're moving through your, your life. But that participation there's significance about your day that you and I never dream of. That's why Paul said in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's why Johann Sebastian Bach wrote at the end of every piece of his, every one of his compositions, soli deo gloria. To the glory of God alone. May you and I sign that to the end of every day. While, while the world says you're a lucky blob of protoplasm, you're just kind of surviving, just kill the pain and take all the distractions, you and I respond to the angel's hymn and say, oh no, there's something more at work here. Jack Canfield tells about a friend of his who was a horse trainer. 
He took his family, therefore they followed the horse racing season, so his family went with him and his kids would go to several schools typically in a given school year. His oldest son's senior year, he was fairly new at the school, the teacher asked them all to do a paper on their dreams for the future. And so his oldest son, I mean, he, he, it, was intri- it was detailed. He, he wrote about how he wants to own a 200-acre horse ranch, train horses for horse racing, wanted to own a 4,000-foot house, a 4,000-square-foot house on that ranch. He actually provided the plans, the floor plan of the house. He named several other things, presented the paper to the teacher. A couple of days later, he got it back, and it said on it, F in big red letter, circled. And underneath, unrealistic. He went up to the teacher and the teacher said, yeah, yeah, I want you to rewrite it. I want want you to write something that's more realistic. He was crestfallen. He went back to his dad. They talked about it a lot. He actually waited almost a week until the next Monday. When his new paper was due, he walked in to the teacher's classroom, laid that paper down on the desk and said respectfully, but forcefully, he says, I didn't write a new paper. And he dropped the old paper with an F on it. He says, you can keep your F, but I'm going to keep my dream. And for you and me to say on a daily basis that's wooing us with the inconsequential, to say, you can keep that vision purposelessness, and occupying ourselves with just distractions and materialism. But I'm going to respond to the call of God that has become the dream of my life and acknowledge my ache and connect with Jesus and concentrate on Him and grasp His glory in participating this plot of seeing His glory take a little bit more advanced today because of my love relationship with Jesus. John 15, Jesus says, by this you'll glorify the Father by bearing much fruit. My fruit bearing is moving the tide of God's glory. And as a result of it, you know, every day, becomes a day of standing on holy ground. So what I want to ask you to do is stand right now. We're going to be commissioned into this season. This has been a little bit longer, but we don't want to leave anything out with Norman Sula. And I don't want to leave anything out because of the power of us getting this this whole notion of God's glory. It's transformational in a family, in a business, in a singing career, in an athletic career. So right where you're standing, I'm going to give you the opportunity to make that proclamation with some other like-minded people who are involved in the advance of the tide of His glory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for every person here, every person online. And I, I ask that we would get this, that we would get the power, the majesty of, of making that intentional decision on a daily basis to respond to the angel's hymn. And to say, you know what the significance of Christmas is? The glory 
to God in the highest. So we stand now in the midst of our relationships and our careers, our doctor's struggles, our health struggles, our financial struggles, our dreams, and say, may above all, we stand in the presence and seek your glory.